Hello everyone. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that one of my major sources for this episode and for this series, uh, the points of argument for which I find these individual issues, I located them at the, the BBC.UK's website, uh, specifically their ethics guide. They discuss the pro and con um, arguments uh, for these individual issues. So if you're wondering where I got uh, at least the overall for and against um, points, it's uh, from that site and some of the arguments that I discuss and the reasoning behind them, uh, most of them come from that site. All right, let's get started with the show. Talking about an uncomfortable subject is like walking in the snow and suddenly your shoe is flooded with water and snow. You thought you were okay, but now you realize I was unprepared for this. Well, here we are. This is the death penalty episode. The idea is in stone. Thou shalt not kill. It's a commandment from the Old Testament. When someone does kill another person, what should be the penalty? Should it be the death penalty? In a total of 20 states, plus Washington, D.C., they've abolished the death penalty. The annual number of U.S. executions peaked at 98 in 1999 and has fallen in the years since. In 2017, 23 inmates were executed, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. That's a little higher than the year before, when 20 people were executed, but still well below the number of inmates annually put to death in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Just eight states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Missouri, Ohio, Texas, and Virginia, accounted for all the executions of 2017, compared with 20 states in 1999. Five prisoners have been, have been executed in the United States in 2020. Four states have carried out the executions. In a Pew Research Center survey, it was conducted in April and in May of 2018, found that 54% of Americans favor the death penalty for people convicted of murder, while 39% oppose it. That is up from 2016, where 49% of U.S. adults said they favored the death penalty, compared to 42% who were against it. But it is lower than in 1996, when 78% of Americans supported capital punishment for those convicted of murder. The United States of America hasn't settled on whether or not to use the death penalty. One side of the country thinks the other side is barbaric, and that other side thinks the other side is weak on crime. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is, the podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. On this episode, we're looking at a case for and against the death penalty. the question, or try to answer the question, what to do with the death penalty, you're probably wondering, how did we get here? Well, in 1972, in a Georgia case involving a black defendant 
William Henry Furman, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. Justice Brennan's concurring opinion in the case argued that the death penalty was unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment, which disallows cruel and unusual punishment. The state Supreme Courts of California and New Jersey, using similar logic, also found the capital punishment to be unconstitutional. Several of Brennan's fellow justices, however, left the door open for the death penalty's return. The opposing justices held that the death penalty would be constitutional if applied equitably to all citizens. After the Vietnam War and the end of the Civil Rights Movement, many state legislatures eagerly sought to satisfy the U.S. Supreme Court by passing legislation that made capital punishment appear to be fair. Many states, for example, required that the state Supreme Court review all death sentences. In 1976, another Georgia case reached what was by then a more conservative Supreme Court. This time, the court held that Georgia's legislature had ensured that the death penalty was equitably administered to one Mr. Troy Gregg. With this Supreme Court ruling, it followed that all other states would once again use capital punishment. Strangely enough, Troy Gregg was never executed. But he later participated in the first successful escape from Georgia death row. In July 28, 1980, while on death row, Troy Gregg escaped together with three other condemned murderers. Being the first to break out of Georgia's death row, the four had sawn through the bars of their cells <clears throat> in a window and walked along a ledge to a fire escape after altering their prison clothing to resemble correctional officer uniforms and then left in a car parked in the visitor's parking lot by one of their aunts. Their escape was not only discovered until Greg telephoned a newspaper to explain their reasons. But Greg didn't live long. He was beaten to death later that night in a biker bar in North Carolina. His body was found in a lake. He had been drinking heavily and attempted to assault one of the waitresses. She rebuked his advances and he became violent towards her. One of the local bikers present, took him off, took offense to his actions and assaulted and killed him. He and several other locals then dumped the body in a lake located behind the bar. The other escapees were captured three days later. The first person to be put to death as a result of that 1976 decision was a man by the name of John Spinkelink. Spinkelink was a drifter who was convicted in California for armed robbery and had been sentenced to five years to life. He had just escaped from Slack Canyon Conservation Camp when he shot and killed a small-time criminal named John Szymankiewicz in Tallahassee, Florida in 73. He had his theories in defense about why he killed Szymankiewicz. Evidence and witness testimony from co-defendant Broom indicated that Spinkelink left their shared motel room, returned with a gun, and shot Szymankiewicz in the back. He turned down a plea bargain to second-degree murder that would have resulted in a life sentence. In 76, Spinklink was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. 
His co-defendant, Broom, was acquitted. Frank Broom says Spankalink hired Broom to help him kill Semenkowicz. Broom suggested that he shoot him in the back. When asked about his own acquittal and the scheduled execution of Spankalink, Broom says, I'll be honest, it doesn't seem fair. But I changed. That's about the only thing I can say in my defense. I rehabilitated myself. Spinkelink wasn't given the chance of rehabilitation. Of course, capital punishment and rehabilitation of the prisoner and return them to society. That's the classic argument that we first come to. But there are many examples of persons being condemned to death, taking opportunity of the time before execution to, give, to express remorse and very often experience the profound spir- spiritual rehabilitation. Thomas Aquinas noted that by accepting the punishment of death, the offender is able to expiate his evil deeds and so escape punishment in the next life. This is not necessarily an argument in favor of capital punishment, but it does show that the death penalty can lead to some forms of rehabilitation. Spinkelink did not get to rehabilitate, but Frank Broom did. His co-defendant does. This happened without Spinkelink's execution. Does this happen without Spinkelink's execution? Or with, without him facing the possibility of facing his own one day? If they both went free, or they both served prison together, what kind of man would Frank Broom have become? I can't say for sure, but I don't think he would be described as rehabilitated. After last-minute appeals and a wall-to-wall coverage in the media, Florida officials executed Spankelink in the, in the electric chair in 1979. As one of Spankelink's lawyers said, pro-death penalty politicians who campaigned as tough on crime were eager for the first victim to be a white man. He argues politicians believed this would inoculate the death penalty from the charge of institutional racism if the first person to be executed after the Supreme Court ruling was a white man. Strangely enough, this nearly wasn't the case because there was another defendant, another person who was on death row about to be executed on the same day, who was an African American, but his uh, execution was postponed. So it very nearly uh, was not as uh, whitewashed of an execution as they were hoping for. Brings us to the next question. Does capital punishment have a race problem? It does, but maybe not in the way you think. Ed Koch wrote in 2011, The racial breakdown for those sentenced to death since 1977 is as follows. 48.6% white, 40.9% black, 8.9% Hispanic, and 1.6% other. The race of defendants executed in the U.S. since 1976 is 56% white, 35% black, 7% Hispanic, 2% other. The reason for the discrepancy of the execution rate between blacks and whites is that juries deciding whether to impose the death penalty 
have concluded in more cases involving black defendants that there were extenuating circumstances militating in favor of a lesser penalty. The American public still supports the death penalty, notwithstanding the hammering capital punishment receives each year. He writes, I'm glad the American public does. Capital punishment may have a race issue, but if you're looking at the defendant, you may be looking in the wrong direction. Walt Harrington wrote in the Washington Post in 1991, but numerous statistics and studies by criminologists have established that, a cap that capital defendants who kill whites are still far more likely to receive the death penalty than defendants who kill black people. The critical distinction is the race of the victim. Period, says University of Iowa law professor David C. Baldus, co-author of the recent book Equal Justice and the Death Penalty, and all the white victim crimes are treated more harshly than those with black victims, adds Baldus, whose massive statistical studies of death sentencing are considered the most authoritative by criminologists. Baldus found that in Georgia, a capital defendant, white or black, who killed a, a white person had an average of 4.3 times greater chance of receiving the death penalty than a defendant who'd killed a black person under similar circumstances. What's le which makes me ponder, why is a white person's death worse to our jury system than a black, than a black person's? I don't know, but it just is. It sounds like America is a country and has been a country that maybe does need to learn a lesson that the death of a black person matters. Hmm. As we look at the capital punishment, and we've just talked about the area in which the victim of the murder plays a part, I, I must pose the question to those who are against the death penalty, are you really against it? Are you? You are, until this happens, a sympathetic victim is killed. Then you can't wait to throw the switch. If you see a headline about a murderer or a pedophile or a dog abuser or a corrupt police officer, some murderers are so awful, even other hardened prisoners think someone should be deserve capital punishment. Do we want justice? Not really. What do we really want? Retribution. Retribution. As the British uh, Ethics uh, Online Board describes retribution and its argument for capital punishment, it says, first a reminder of the basic argument behind retribution and punishment. The idea is, all guilty people deserve to be punished. Only guilty people deserve to be punished. Guilty people deserve to be punished in proportion to the severity of their crime. They continue, this argument states that real justice requires people to suffer for their wrongdoing and to suffer in a way appropriate to the crime. Each criminal should get what their crime, crime deserves and in a case of a murderer, what their crime deserves is death. 
many people find this argument fits with their inherent sense of justice. It's often supported with the argument, an eye for an eye. But to argue like that demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of what the Old Testament phrase actually means. In the fact, the Old Testament meaning of an eye for an eye is that only the guilty should be punished. They should be punished neither too leniently nor too severely. Some arguments against retribution. Capital punishment is vengeance rather than retribution, and as such is a morally dubious concept. The argument continues, the anticipatory suffering of the criminal who may be kept on death row for many years makes the punishment more severe than just depriving the criminal of life. That is certainly true in the U.S., but delay is not an inherent feature of capital punishment. Some countries execute people within days of sentencing them to death. Some people are prepared to argue against retribution as a concept, even when applied fairly. A further argument against retribution. Many people believe that retribution is morally flawed and problematic. The U.S. Catholic Conference said, We cannot teach that killing is wrong by killing. This quote is attributed to Archbishop Desmond Tutu. To take a life when a life has been lost is revenge. It is not justice. The main argument that retribution is immoral is that it is just a sanitized form of vengeance. Scenes of howling mobs attacking prison vans containing those accused of murder on their way to and from court or chanting aggressively outside prisons when an offender is being executed shows that vengeance is a major ingredient in the public popularity of capital punishment. And especially if it is a victim that we feel bad about. We, that is when we say, yes, we want revenge. But just retribution designed to reestablish justice can easily be distinguished from vengeance and vindictiveness. The Victorian legal philosopher James Stevens thought vengeance was an acceptable justification for punishment. He thought, for the sake of ratifying the feeling of hatred, call it revenge, resentment, or what you will, which the contemplation of such conduct excites in healthily constituted minds. Because that's really what we want. When you hear about terrible things happening, what do we want? We want revenge. But is revenge and justice the same thing? It's not. It's even scarier when we want revenge on the wrong person. The issue of execution of innocent persons is a huge problem for retribution. There's a serious risk of executing innocent people when one of the key principles of retribution that people should get what they deserve. Therefore, only if what they deserve is if they actually did it. But the problem is, we don't always know that they did it. We don't always get the right person. Post-mortem DNA tests have shown that some people were innocent of crimes which, for which they were executed for. In 1973, at least 90 people waiting with debt sentences have been, been fortunate enough to have 
the lawyers and reporters fighting for their innocence. Also, false convictions mean that murderers are still free. Sympathy for the families of victims is always in the minds of those arguing for the death penalty. Many see it as must for those family members who know that the killer has been put to death. But some victims' families disagree. And to them, to exact such a punishment is only to match the killer's act with another killing. I can't help but mentioning that our justice system desperately needs reform. Spinkelink's last words before being executed was, Capital punishment. Them without the capital get the punishment. A United Nations Joint Statement about the death penalty in October 10, 2017 is, says, If you are poor, the chances of being sentenced to death are immensely higher than if you're rich. There could be no greater indictment of the death penalty than the fact that in practice it is really a penalty reserved for people with lower socioeconomic groups. This turns into a class-based form of discrimination in most countries, thus making it the equivalent of an arbitrary killing. People living in, in poverty are disproportionately affected by the death penalty in many, for many reasons. They are an easy target for the police. They, con they cannot afford a lawyer. The free legal assistance they might receive is of low quality. Procuring a expert evidence is beyond their means. Tracing witnesses is too costly. And access to appeals often depends on being able to afford extra counsel. Many cannot afford bail and therefore remain in custody before their trials, further hindering their efforts to prepare an effective defense. Some legal aid systems become active only at the trial stage, meaning that defendants from low socioeconomic backgrounds are often interrogated and investigated without a lawyer. By the time the case reaches court, it may already be too late to guarantee a free trial. Johnny Cochran said, Money will determine whether the accused goes to prison or walks out of the courtroom a free man. The most frequently used argument for the death penalty is that it is a deterrent, that it keeps others from committing crime. Many studies have shown this is simply not true. But it is an idea that many people still believe. And the BBC's Ethics Guide says capital punishment is often justified with the argument that by executing convicted murderers, we will deter would-be murderers from killing people. I immediately, my mind, thought of this scene from the TV show Ozark, where Marty Bird uh, uses this reasoning to not get himself killed. He's about to be shot and robbed when he reminds the person robbing him that this state has the death penalty. So is it worth it to shoot me? It's hard to argue with Jason Bateman's character, but there are arguments against deterrence. Now, some classic arguments against it. The statistical evidence doesn't confirm that deterrence works, but the stats also don't confirm that deterrence doesn't work. My thought... It sure deters the person they executed. Yet some of those executed may not have been capable of being deterred because of mental illness or defect. Some capital crimes are committed in such an emotional state 
that the perpetrator didn't think about the possible consequences. Should that matter? Legally, yes. Part of one's mental health is the ability to differentiate between right and wrong, and the consequences. If they didn't know what they were doing at the time, it does seem cruel to use capital punishment. No one knows whether the death penalty deters more than life imprisonment. Deterrence is most effective when the punishment happens soon after the crime. To make an analogy, a child learns not to put their finger in the fire because the consequence is instant pain. The more legal process distances the punishment from the crime, either in time or certainty, the less effective a deterrent the punishment will probably be. So, should we execute murderers immediately? No, because as we've said, there are plenty of stories of people on death row who were exonerated because there was time for the appeal and additional investigation. So if we're going to use capital punishment, our reasons cannot be retribution or deterrence. We better be 100% sure we have the guilty party involved in the murder. As I was doing my research for this episode, I was listening to this audiobook about capital punishment, and they brought up the idea of what do you do with criminals or murderers who keep killing behind bars? What do you do if life imprisonment is just a isn't keeping them from uh, behaving themselves? They have no uh, interest in rehabilitating. What do you do when these killers keep killing behind bars? For a couple of examples of this actually happening, of moving from the hypothetical to the reality, from the StarTribune.com, uh, they reported that about uh, 38 years ago, Bjork, that and went, then known as that time Craig Jackson, not to be confused with the singer, committed a spree. This man committed a spree of four murders that Minneapolis police called the city's worst of the 20th century. He achieved new notoriety years later as a problem inmate when he beat a man to death in Stillwater Prison. In 2013, after Minnesota sent him to Oregon State Penitentiary, he killed his cellmate, a convicted murderer named Joe Atkins. Jackson ranks among a tier of violent inmates who pose a dilemma for prisons, it writes. He is serving a, a minimum 170-year prison sentence. With two more murder convictions under his belt, his outlook has hardly changed from when a Hepamine County judge first sentenced him to never be permitted to walk the streets of any community for the remainder of his life. Brad Colbert, who runs a legal assistance clinic for prisoners at Mitchell Hamlin Law School, said inmates like Jackson are why supermax prisons were built, referring to long-term high-security facilities with segregated cells. Jackson is really the 0.001% of the 001% of people who are incarcerated, he said. I think if you put him in a place where he can't hurt anyone else, but you don't forget that he is not like the other people who are incarcerated. In 2017, after a Star Tribune reporter wrote about Jackson facing the death penalty, 
He called from solitary confinement in Oregon and spoke at length about his life and murders. Jackson claimed that killing Atkins was an act of self-defense. It's an old penitentiary, he says, at the end of the tier. It's dark. We're alone. The two convicted murderers in the cell in the middle of the night. There's no help, you know. Jackson doesn't deny the six killings of which he's been convicted over the years. He is adamant, however, that those facts do not alone define him. He feels deep remorse and wants to be viewed with more nuance than simply a monster. But what do you do about Henry Bribson? The man convicted of the I-57 murders. This, these facts from uh, murderpedia.org. Now sits confine, confined in the Menard Condemned Unit, the official name for death row in the Illinois prison system. Yet Henry Bribson Jr., 28 years old at the time of this uh, article, does not face execution for those three killings 10 years ago at the writing of this article. Illinois' death penalty was invalidated in 1972 and was not restored until 1977, the year that Bribson was finally brought to trial. At that time, the judge sentenced him to a term of 1,000 to 3,000 years in prison. It took Bribson less than one year to kill again, this time stabbing a fellow inmate at Stateville Correctional Center with the sharpened handle of a soup ladle. At the trial of this murder, Will County State's attorney Edward Petka described Bridson as a very, very terrible human being, a walking testimonial for the death penalty. The jury agreed. Bribson's 11 months on death row had been quiet compared with his Stateville years when he took part in 15 attacks on inmates and guards, instigated at least one prison riot, trashed a courtroom during a trial, and hit a warden with a broom handle. He says, I'm no bad dude, just an antisocial anti individual. A third of 13 children, Bribson thinks his upbringing by a strict black Muslim father made him different. I was taught to be a racist and not like whites. As I grew up, I decided I didn't like nobody. So in this argument of for and against the death penalty, as we consider murderers who continue to kill behind bars, the argument against the death penalty is saying that they have these supermax prisons and that's what they should use. And those that are pro the death penalty would say, how can you just allow this person who's already killed to kill again and still face the same punishment of just life behind bars? When is enough enough? When have they finally failed the test of society and the shared agreement of of existing among people, if not among the free society, among the microcosm of society that is prison. And they continue to fail to abide by those rules. When is enough enough? As we come down here to the conclusion of the episode, um, quite similar to my normal uh, episodes, where we come down to the, I don't know, final thoughts or my conclusion, 
I have to tell you, this has been a, a whirlwind or an adventure of a time just studying this issue alone. Um, as you could probably tell by the course of this episode, um, I have been someone who has been um, in favor of the idea of the death penalty. I see it as a something that is the proper punishment for someone who has indeed killed and killed terribly, purposefully, and maliciously, and has no desire to turn their life around or to change, and if given the opportunity, would continue to kill again. As I've gone through the course of working on this episode and uh, looking at a variety of different cases and considering how our justice system has worked, um, considering the fact that uh, somewhere around one out of nine times that the United States of America has 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 executed someone, then one out of nine times that person has been found to have been innocent. But it's too late, because they've already been executed. I'd be more in favor of the death penalty if our justice system worked better. If we knew for certain the person we were executing was a thousand percent guilty. And even then, that they're not only guilty, but that they would and continue to be a threat to everyone around them. Then I'd be okay with, so I'd be okay with the death penalty. If we had a perfect justice system, and if you had a the exact murderer, then yes, the death penalty would be something that could be used if our justice system was perfect. Unfortunately, it isn't. My best argument for the death penalty, uh, to use some of the uh, phraseology of uh, Craig Jackson from, uh, from the Star Tribune story, he asks people not to consider him a monster. My only argument for the death penalty is, what do we do with the monsters? What would we do with the people that we know positively say that they are absolutely are monsters and continue to be a threat to people around them? Do we allow them to just continue on and to be punished just like everyone else? Aren't we punishing the people who have to be around them? Aren't we putting their lives at risk? Even at the most supreme, supermax prisons, it isn't necessarily impossible for someone not to kill again. It's improbable, but it's not impossible. So what do we do with the monsters? What does that say if we're shaping our society? Are we tolerating murder? At what point are any more killings going to necessitate the use of the death penalty. What, what harsher penalty can we give murderers who are already serving life sentences and continue to kill? At one point, are we punishing everyone except the murderer? 
The only purpose I can find is that death penalty serves is as a way of saying, we will not tolerate murder. This will not stand. A murderer has given up the right to live when someone intentionally and purposefully violates the fundamental rule of existence. Murder. And they must meet the consequences. But capital punishment is should only be should be kept up on a shelf if it even if if it's allowed to exist should be up on a shelf so high that on, only to be reserved as the most extreme punishment reserved for only the guilty and the most extreme cases of murders but we don't have a perfect justice system and we don't have perfect lawyers and we don't always know for sure that someone has killed but we're left with the idea we come back around to the fundamental idea of thou shalt not kill that that's wrong but is executing someone just as wrong I don't know possibly my best argument against the death penalty is that if we go Old Testament on this, the same God that gave us the, the Old Testament, that gave us the, the commandments that Moses came off of Mount Sinai with, when he dealt with the very first murder, he didn't execute the murderer involved. When Cain killed Abel, God gave him a life sentence of wandering. It says... Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Now that you have driven me this day from the soil, I must hide from your presence. I shall be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain shall suffer sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, so that whoever found him would not slay him. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So even the Almighty, who knows everything, knows who the murderer is, doesn't execute the very first murderer. I have a hard time arguing against that. Well, that does it for this episode. Not that that means that this discussion ends. It doesn't mean that I have rendered the final verdict on this topic. I'd love to hear your opinion on the issue of the death penalty, uh, whether you're for it or against it, and your reasons why. And I'd love to hear from you if you'd uh, please uh, Facebook message me at the uh, the Story Is uh, Podcast Facebook page, or also on the uh, on Instagram at the Story Is Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know about uh, what you think about the death penalty and also the uh, coming issues that we are going to be discussing in the next two episodes. Our next episode is going to be on a another very um, controversial, argued over topic. We are going to be looking at abortion. That is next time.
so that will be next episode. I hope you'll join us. I thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I'm Sam Logan. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it.